We are currently learning the book of Genesis, in fact, the parasha of Noah, and we have been having a, a lot of discussion about Noah and about the flood, and in fact, the flood is soon to begin. I don't think this week, maybe next week, but we're taking it slow through the various verses, understanding its pshat, understanding its uh, what it's saying in the simplistic sense, and then going deeper in an understanding the Midrashic um, aspects to it, the various other commentators, and of course always learning a life lesson of what the parasha of Noah is coming to teach us. And this week is no different. Um, that is the format that we will be taking. So any of you out there that are relaxing at home or that um, are just having some time out listening to this discussion, firstly and foremostly, I invite anybody out there who has any questions to ask, any comments to make, to not be shy. Our WhatsApp number is 061-895-1019. Our SMS number 34519. Please feel free. Let's, uh, let's connect and let's have a discussion, a debate, whatever it is. Um, that you would like to share your comments are most welcome. If you are at home and you have access to a Bible, to a Tanakh, to the five books of Moses, um, you can open up to chapter six um, of Genesis, that is in the middle of the Parsha of Noah, chapter six, and we are going to be starting today on verse seventeen. Just to give a recap, last week we discussed what the ark looked like god gave um, instructions on it to be quite quite a large edifice but what we will see today with what it is that it was carrying it in fact was pretty small um even though in in uh, you know in physical terms in our minds we can we can understand that it was quite a a, a big uh, structure. It had three floors. It had at least 150 compartments. Um, some rabbis say even more. And it was to house um, everything that was found living in this world. And um, now, once we've understood the structure of the ark, God continues to give Noah further instructions and that's where we are going to pick up now we are going to look at verse 17 god says as follows ve'ani hinani mevi etamabul maim al haaretz and as for me now behold i am about to bring a mabul the flood waters upon the earth leshachet kol basar asher I'm going to bring these flood waters on the earth to destroy all flesh of which there is a breath of life under the heavens. Everything that is in the earth shall expire. So as we're going through the verses, I'm going to throw out this question. Um, what didn't need saving? What did not need saving? You can uh, SMS to three four five one nine or WhatsApp oh six one eight nine five one oh one nine. What did not need saving? Here we've got that God is going to bring the flood waters upon the earth, destroy all the flesh which has a breath of life under the heavens, and everything that is in the earth shall also expire. 
Verse 18 reads then, Vehakimoti et briti, I will uphold your, the, your covenant, itach, with you, uvata elateva, and then you shall enter the ark, ata, you, uvanecha, and your children, the ishtacha, and your wife, and the wives of your sons that are with you. Umikol hachaya b'chol basar shnaim mikol tavi el hateva lehachayot itach, and from all that all that lives, all the flesh, two of each, you shall bring into the ark to keep alive with you. Umehaof leminehu umin habehema lemina. And you will also take every bird according to its kind, every animal according to its kind, anything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, two of them will come to you, shall come to you, for you to keep them alive. And you, you should take uh, for yourself every kind of food that is which um, is eaten and you should gather it in for yourself and that will be for you and for them to eat and Noach fulfilled everything that God commanded him, so he did it. There you go. We've looked at four verses, 17 to 22, and now we're going to go back and dissect them somewhat, uh, throwing out the question, what did not need to be saved in the time of Noach? Please SMS your answers in on 34519 or 61 so we start um, initially with God saying that I am now going to uh, fulfill my 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 part of the deal. I'm going to be bringing uh, a flood water upon the earth, and that is going to destroy all the flesh um, which is found on the planet. And um, here we actually understand. That God is doing to the world mida keneged mida, as as one behaves, so God there is a repercussion, there is a consequence. Um, we know that when uh, God said that He 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 saw that the world was corrupt, He said ki hishchit kobasa that all flesh had become corrupt, and now He uses the same words leshachat that all of the of flesh will be destroyed. So we can see over here that the corruption, the, the point of the marble, the point of the flood was to destroy the corruption. It comes from the same, the, um, the, the, the same verse. And that God will establish his covenant with Noah, meaning that the, this covenant was there, it was needed to guarantee a few things. One, God was promising him that he would save Noach and his sons. Two, he was guaranteeing that the food in the ark wouldn't spoil. Okay. Three, that the wicked of the generation would not 
kill him. Um, there was actually, there was the necessity for a tremendous amount of miracles, uh, to happen. And so when God says, I am giving you, I am forming a covenant with you, a promise, a, a, a surety, um, of what will be, he was promising and ensuring all of these things that they, they, they should or they shouldn't happen in order to ensure the survival of Noah and, um, the, uh, and, and the whole repercussions of the flood. He needed to give Noah a guarantee that he would be saved. Further on, it wasn't only about the food. It wasn't only about the generation killing him. It wasn't only about, you know, uh, saving him. What he also needed to do was also promise Noah that while they were floating um, in this ark, and we know that it took close on a year for them eventually to settle back down on earth, um, that the animals themselves that were found in the ark, they themselves would not eat. So in and of itself, it's, it's, it was quite a complex covenant that God, that, that God makes with Noah prior to commanding him now that what will happen is that he will now have to embrace uh, th- that which he needs to bring into the ark in order that uh, he can um, be guaranteed survival. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kazilski. Welcome back. And uh, I asked the question before the break. Um, once we were starting to read the, the, the practical verses of what had to come into the ark, I asked you what was not to be saved during the marble that didn't necessarily need saving. And thank you, Shira Silverman. Yes, indeed, all the sea creatures did not need to be saved. The entire aquatic world, in fact, um, they obviously did not come along for the ride because they were not harmed and they were the only Part of the of of the living world that did not need to be saved. Thank you for that, Shira. Now we are going to go and look at the commandment of how God says that Noah should enter into the ark. He says, um, and I think it starts on verse. Let's just have a look. Sorry, it's the middle of verse seventeen. Uvata el hateva, you shall enter. The ark. This isn't a command. Okay, this isn't the command yet. God is saying to him, I'm going to establish my covenant with you and you shall enter. It's more of a divine promise. Why? Because when you actually think of the magnitude of everything this ark had to contain, it was way too small. So God, in part of his covenant, in part of his divine promise, is saying that I recognize that the ark appears to be far too small to contain you, Noah, as well as the multitude of the creatures. But uvata elateva, you will be able to enter the ark. There will, there will be a miraculous expansion and there will be enough space for everything to enter the ark and to remain there. For the duration of the flood. So this was yet another miracle that had to be created. God had to like almost expand the space or make some type of miracle that he was able to sustain everything that everybody was was able to fit into the ark. And then we have what seemingly might just slip 
you know, through the cracks because you're just reading it on a practical level, we hear the words, Ve'ata ubanecha ve'ishtacha unashei vanecha itach. You and your sons, your wife and your wife's sons. A very like kind of convoluted way of saying which human beings should enter into the ark. It could have probably read better if it went you and your wife and your sons and their wives, or even easier could have just said you and your family. But we know that the Torah doesn't spend any um, effort in, in saying things that aren't there for a purpose. And the manner in which it said you and your sons and your wife and your wife's sons come to teach us that the sequence in which the people are listed is to teach us that while they were on the ark, while they were going through the destruction of the world, that marital intimacy was forbidden. And we are able to see um, when that is allowed again, much further on, and we will pick it up again when we come to the end of the flood and the disembarkation of the family men- members, there you will see that Noah comes off the ark with his wife and the sons with their wives. And uh, Torah co- comes to teach us that when the world is in a state of national catastrophe when there is terrible things happening in the world as, as a whole and one is an individual and is part of the whole, then having physical uh, pleasure, um, personal pleasure um, is not allowed because one needs to be part of that whole and cognizant that there is a world out there that is um, – that that is suffering, um, so we 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 have that as well. For example, marital intimacy is not allowed on the day of Tisha B'av. Tisha B'av is the saddest day of the year. It is a day when we mourn the destruction of the temple. It is something very much in the realm of the nationalistic viewpoint of Judaism. And um, but nevertheless, we are commanded that we are not allowed to have any personal pleasure because we are. Part of the whole, and so this very sequence comes to teach us that um, marital intimacy was forbidden once Noah entered the ark. But as we will see further and later on, once they left the ark again, um, they were permitted to each other. So you and your sons, your wife and your wife's sons. Then we get the general gist of what needs to be brought on to uh, the ark. Umikol hachaya means anything that retained the vitality of life. Nothing, anything that was not corrupted by uh, um, the, the, the negativity that was prevalent on earth, that all should come in. Shnayim mikol, two of each. Now, this is the general principle meaning that at least from every single species, there was to be no less than two, a male and a female. And very interestingly, the Ramban Nachmanides observes that there were many huge beasts. Imagine the elephants and so many other species of all sizes that, in fact, if you actually counted the amount of animals that would have to get onto the ark, the Ramban said there should be at least 10 such ark, arks, at least 10 such arks. In fact, he says even 10 such arks could not contain 
all those animals and all the provisions they needed for one year. And here was the miracle that this, this small ark, ark contained so much. So we could ask the question, if there was such a miracle anyway, why did God not relieve Noah of the burden of the construction and have him make even a smaller ark? The answer given, there's, there's two possibilities, two answers to this question. The first is that an imposing structure would be noticed and possibly influence the people to repent. Um, so it was like there in your face, it was huge so that they could actually see it, not that it helped too much. But also the larger the structure, the less obvious the miracle. And one should always try to reduce your reliance on miracles as much as possible. Um, shall you bring into the ark? Now, here you can see that the command here doesn't mean that God intended Noah to actually bring these animals into the ark. We can see that, in fact, God brings the animals to Noah. Noah didn't go out and have to hunt and look for every single animal. That was another miracle that happened. All the animals came towards the ark when the time came for them to embark and go inside. And uh, the commandment at the end of verse 90, um, they have to be kept alive with you, uh, comes to teach us that this was to become Noah's um, complete, his, his life mission, really, for the next year. He was there to provide for the well-being daily of every single animal. Lahachayot, to keep alive, not lichyot, to live. Because somebody can come and live with you, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to keep them alive. They can come live with you, you don't have to feed them, you don't have to give them somewhere to sleep. Um, and they could possibly die um, in your company. Here it's not lichyot to live with you, lehachayot um, to to be kept alive by you. That was um, that was what it is. That was his job. Zacharu nekeva yihiyu. They will be male and female. Why? Because obviously we needed to ensure the survival of each and every single. Animal. Then God gets a little bit more specific because he said take two of each kind, a male and female of each kind. He then goes and says, Meha'of leminehu, you must take birds according to each kind. And the word leminehu is repeated many, many times according to each kind. The Gomorrah comes to teach us that implies that only the animals that retained their own species, i.e. they had not committed the perversion of mating with other species were allowed on because if you recall a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the perversion and the negativity and the corruption that was on earth. And part of it was that human beings didn't keep to themselves. There was a lot of um, uh, uh, intimacy that happened, uh, sexual acts that happened between animals and human beings and then between animals with other animals um, that were not of its kind. So, those that were being saved were leminehu, according to each kind, only those that kept to their own species. 
According to the Nitziv, though, he says, Leminehu also comes to teach something else, that within each species of animals, there were many different breeds. Now, uh, they couldn't all have um, existed at the time of creation. Um, what they did is they took only one or a pair from each kind of animal, and later on, they they breeded, and then there was all these genetic mutations, and then you got the various different aspects of each animal, you know, the, the different breeds within each category of animal. Behema, um, here when he's talking about the animals, generally means the domesticated animals, but we are told by the Radak that it also included the Chaya, the wild beasts, etc., etc. And what's pretty interesting that it even says, Mikol Remesa Adama Leminehu, that Everything that creeps that that creeps on the ground should be taken. And this word it says umikol remes. The reason that we have kol, which in English is all, is used, is to impress upon Noach that although, as a human being, one might deem insect insect life as unnecessary and dispensable, um, nevertheless, God knows why He created. These creepy crawly things and small things and ants and, and, and whatever else we see that crawls along the ground. They have a purpose. And therefore God was saying you have to even be, you have to be careful in ensuring that even each one of those species are accounted for. And where do we learn that he didn't have to go out and hunt them and collect them? It goes on to say, Yavo elecha lehachayot. They're going to come to you and so that you can keep them alive. Noah, once Noah was permitted to enter into the ark, the animals just simply came, came, came with and they arrived into the ark. What also needed to be saved is discussed in verse 21, where it says, Va'ata kach lecha, and now you, and you, kach lecha mikol ma'achal asher yochal. You have to take all the food that you will eat. But then interestingly it says, the asafta elecha, and gather it in for yourself. So firstly, um, Noah had to take the appropriate food for the various species, and he had to obviously bring in his own food and um, prepare all the food that was needed for the, for, 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 for the animals. Um, and sustain them. So we are told by the Radak that he brought in all kinds of fruits, seeds, herbs, okay? And what actually happened was a further miracle in that, um, the, all the creatures, including the carnivorous creatures, abstained from meat. They, everybody became vegetarian. Um, so we're, we there up for the vegans and the vegetarians out there. Um, they all were sustained by the fruit seeds and herbs. The Midrash comments that the greater part of Noah's provisions actually consisted of pressed figs along with various greens from different animals. He also stored vine shoots, fig shoots, olive shoots, and various other seeds for future planting, and that then explains the two words, asafta elecha, and you should gather them, gather it in for yourself. Because one is to bring the food into the ark. What do you need to gather? So we learn from over here that he gathered it in 
because he had to store it away so that when he was released from the ark, he could then also plant. So it wasn't only just about bringing that which he needed to to feed himself, his family, the animals, but also to take stuff on that he would be able to plant in the future um, and allow then the, 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 the plant world to regenerating. Um, the Raul Bach, which is another commentator, suggested that for Noah to have known how much food to gather, he must have been told how how approximately how long God was planning for him to stay into in, into the ark. Others say he didn't know. This was part of the miracle. The food just sufficed um, for itself for as long as it was. It was sufficient. It was satisfactory. And this was God's promise. This was God's covenant that he would he would see it. And the verses com, um Com- complete and finish up by saying, God did. He, he, he followed God's command, uh, scrupulously. He didn't omit anything from what God commanded him. He did so. He did it exactly like that. He was very, very dedicated to the cause and he fulfilled everything that God required of him in its entirety. So you can just imagine in your mind's eye, if we take what we learned last week about the enormity of what he had to build and then add onto it the amount of animals, the amount of food that had had to come on, the, the amount of logistics and the amount of time that they would have to spend on the ark, that would in fact really have early been able to happen um, in a miraculous fashion because if one had to do this exercise today, one would never, ever be able, uh, I don't even think building 10 arcs would, would, would suffice. So those are the verses that I want to look at. I'd like to touch on something much deeper now um, and discuss the flood on, on a, on a, on a much deeper level and maybe look at the context of the flood, not in and of itself, but as something far greater in the annals of history and in, you know, where we're at right now, um, in this process. If we look at the Tanakh, if we look at the five books of Moses that, and that follow in then with everything that's found in the prophets and in the writings, we pick up three times in history where the earth is submerged in water. The first time, obviously, is in Genesis 1, in the first chapter of Genesis, verse 2, where it says, The earth was without void and without form. Um, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. We know that in the beginning of creation, there was only water. So this was the first time, okay, in the course of history that the earth was submerged in water. Only later, on the, on the, on the, on the second day, once the waters were separated, the third day did dry land appear. So initially, at the beginning of creation, the earth was submerged in water. The second time is now where we understand 
um, we'll see now in verse in chapter seven where the flood was forty days upon the earth, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high mountains were submerged. Yet again, here we see that the waters were covered up. There is a third time in the course of history <clears throat> where the waters need to submerge the earth. And I'm going to give you a couple of seconds as we go for a break and see if you can work out where else in the course of history do we, are we told in the Tanakh that the earth will be submerged in water. You can SMS on 34519 or WhatsApp on 061-895-1019. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kazilski. This Friday is Rosh Chodesh Adar Bet, and it's the month of the holiday of Purim, of joy and of pranks. So Chai FM Management is sending Howard Feldman and Zanati Guma back to school. Chai FM will be joining and will be, will be coming to you radio live from King David Linksfield this Friday for Rosh Chodesh Adar. Join, join, join Howard Feldman and the Morning Mayhem team from 6 to 9 a.m. as they get schooled this Rosh Chodesh Adar. What a lot of fun. Okay, we're back, and I asked the question before we took the break. Well, well, I made a comment and then asked the question. I made the comment that there's actually three times in the course of history where we find that the earth is submerged in water. First was at the beginning of creation, where we are told the world was created as water enveloped, was water enveloped in water, and it was only on the third day of creation that God said to the waters, gather to one place and let dry land appear. Water again covers now the earth in Noah's time, and we know that um, the, even the mountains were completely submerged. The third time, and I don't see anybody responding, it's quite obscure, but it's pretty interesting because they're all connected. The third time we will see um, water submerging the earth is from a verse from Yeshiyahu, from Isaiah. It's from uh, chapter 11, verse 9. It says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters uh, submerge the sea. This is probably a little bit more allegorical. Uh, it was a bit of a trick question, I admit, that in far at the end of days, Isaiah promises a future world that will be suffused with water. This water, though, is allegorical in that it is a world which we know, he continues to say, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, they will not hurt or destroy, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water submerge the sea. But I'm sure that you've hung around long enough to know and understand that everything that we have in Torah is interconnected, that it is one eternal uh, truth, and that fact that the world began with water and then was submerged with water again with Noah. And then again, at the end of time, we are going to be having some type of submersion in water. There has to be a connection um, with it. So when we go and analyze it, it seems that the earth being filled with water at the beginning of time and the earth uh, being submerged with water at the end of time are positive things. The flood, on the other hand, seems to be a negative 
phenomena. It seems to be a punishment. Um, and on a practical level, yes, it manifested as such. But when we are dealing with mysticism, when we are dealing with the, the, the teachings of Hasidus, um, there is no such concept as negativity. Um, rather, we need to look into the deeper le- uh, uh, levels and understand what we are looking at. So the teachings of Kabbalah explain that we experience physical earth because we have gone through a process called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means concealment, meaning that God is almighty, he is infinite, he is eternal, and if we tried to live in the presence of God in that state, we could know, we could not exist because God is unified. He is one. And in a space where there is only oneness and uh, there is an infiniteness, there is no space for another. And so our mystical and Kabbalistic teachers teach us that the world went through a contraction. And what happened was that godliness got got swallowed up, so to speak, or got contracted into the physical um, world. By the way, the word olam, which is the word for world, means concealment, that God self-concealed himself, and what gave rise was a reality that was populated with creatures now that possess an ego, possesses possess an identity, etc., etc., on a deep level, however, if one would put on spiritual glasses, even though one would perceive a tree and a mountain and a person and a desk and everything around us, if we sliced it, if we put it microscopically under a very strong microscope, you would see at the end what, what causes it to exist is in fact godliness. It's just that godliness has gone through a concealment. Now, in understanding that, then we can understand the spiritual significance of the three floods. Because water, um, according to the, the Kabbalistic teachings, denotes knowledge and awareness. As we understand from Yeshiao, from Isaiah, where he says at the end of days, um, God, you know, the earth will be flooded with God's knowledge, just like water submerged, submerges the earth. Um, Water is metaphorical for knowledge and awareness. And when we look at water, and particularly when there is a pool of water, there is a very, very significant um, interpretation there that teaches us that water purifies. And this whole discussion actually revolves around what we know in in uh, in common terms as the mikvah. A mikvah is a pool of naturally gathered water. And Torah says when somebody is spiritually impure, one needs to immerse. Now, just as a sideline, we know that one that 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 the mikvah is used in many many circumstances in Torah. One happens to be particularly when it comes to purification. Um, in terms of marital intimacy, that a woman goes through a state of impurity and then has to go through a state of purity, and the switch between the two is the immersion in water. Now, the Rambam, Maimonides, clearly, clearly dictates that the normal human mind cannot fathom and understand how water changes impurity to purity. 
It is something that, that is very deep. And I guess it's something that, that, that people have argued like, I don't, I really understand that. I'm, I'm not different, you know, from the time that, 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 that I am in a state of impurity. And then, you know, the next day I'm in, I don't understand the mechanism, but the mechanism isn't there. And we can see that particularly when it comes to the world of Noah, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, we are taught there that by the Alter Rebbe, the, the first Chabad Rebbe, Rebbe Shneir Zaman of Liadi, that Noah's flood was a cosmic mikvah. The world was being immersed to be purified from its co- corruption. And the 40 days and 40 nights is not insignificant. In fact, it's powerfully significant because the measure of a kosher mikvah um, is 40 se'ah. You have to have 40 Se'ah, which are a certain amount of cubits of water, so too God actually, so to speak, almost immersed the entire planet um, in water. So the laws of immersion in a mikvah um, expect our entire body to be entirely submerged in the mikvah waters, and when you are released from that submersion, you come out completely different. You you go from, in a sense, from a um, a place of selfhood, a place of apartness, to a place of being reconnected again to the divine truth. So in the beginning, let's look at all three floods. In the beginning, the, 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 the earth was submerged in water, and this was the precedent, okay, in that at that point in time, all that was known at the beginning of creation was the divine truth. We're going to go for a little bit of a break and then we're going to see what the second flood, Noah's flood did and what the future flood will be doing for us. You're listening to Robertson Adol Kazilski. Hi there, back again and uh, we are just now trying to understand this submersion of water why God in fact destroyed the world through a f- flood and why this happened to be the second of three um, times in history where the earth is covered in water. So going back again, just as we said before the break, the first water was when water was all pervasive. There was only water in this world. Earth was was um, had, was submerged, and this was the state, right? And this is only verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis. This was the, the, the space where the earth was completely connected to divine understanding, to divine truth, to unity, to infiniteness, to the knowledge that God is one. Then what happens is God goes through the creative processes and moves the waters away and separates and brings earth um, up and, and allows earth to appear. And that is indicative, that that is metaphorical for the fact that it we went through a symptom, we went through the concealment, and now we are able to stand on our own, and our process was then to go and find God in, so to speak, into, in that vacuum, in that waterless place, which we call dry land. Unfortunately, what happened was that in Noah's time, the, the, that symptom, that uh, concealment became, um, so to speak, too concealed, so concealed that people lost the plot completely and did not believe in God, and and that resulted in a corruption, 
um, of note. And so what God had to actually do then in order to demolish that materialistic perspective that had distanced the world from God, he had to again submerge the dry land in his all-consuming truth. And this was Noah's flood on a spiritual um, conceptual level. It wasn't a punishment, but it was the, 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 the need to awaken again the memory of the earth's origin and resubmerge it in its source. When Noah came out of the ark again onto dry land, the earth now had embedded in itself the knowledge of God. And so began now a period of history which has lasted until today where we are living on dry land, we are living with concealment, and it is our job not to obliterate earthliness but to find in the physical reality the the connection to God. What will be the result? The result will then be so uh, the result will then be the third flood. Okay, Noah's flood is like a preamble for the third messianic flood, which Isaiah prophesizes. He says the earth will be filled, not overwhelmed, but filled with the knowledge of God as the waters submerge the sea, which means that the earth will remain earthly. The dry, man, dry land will remain dry, but the earth will be suffused with divine truth, and it will be as if the waters cover the earth. So the sec, the first, the second flood enables the first, and, and then the third flood is enabled by, 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 by the second. And so we can see that this entire idea with Noah is actually a part of a much, much greater picture and something that we are still all involved in. With that, um, it, we are, we are concluding our learning for today. I wish each and every one of you a wonderful week, a week where you go out and you deal with your dry land, with your reality, and that you spend time looking a little bit deeper into your reality and finding the divine truth in everything.